And this bull looped out and he came out into the wide open. And he, he came out and, and he was looking at my horses. So he could see my horses behind me, 60, 70 yards. And when he was like trotting out of there, running out of there, he heard me calling. And so it was enough for him to loop around. And for whatever reason, he, he just came out into the wide open and stared at my horses. And me and my cameraman moved another 70 yards up through the timber and poked out the edge of the timber. And I ranged him at 72 and he was sitting there just staring at my horses as calm as can be. And I drew back and heart shot him. Oh, nice dude. And, and he ran out in the open, the wide ass open slope and tipped over on the skyline. It, like it's epic footage. On so a, awesome. On a big 360 bull. It was as good as it gets for me. Welcome to the Elk Hunt Podcast with myself, Cody Rich. This feed is home to the best elk hunting podcast that I've done over the last seven years. And if you want to be a better elk hunter, then you're in the right place. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. Check it out. Link in the show notes. All righty, Dan. Welcome to uh, welcome to the podcast. We're going to talk about elk, elk hunting. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're pretty excited. Elk season's right around the corner. Uh, I know I'm getting pumped up. Uh, we had you out at the Western Elk Hunting Summit a couple weeks ago and uh really enjoyed your talk and i was like man we got to get on this is uh what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of a something that crosses my mind i get a lot of questions about so we're going to dive into you know calling versus not calling so i guess on that note welcome to the podcast uh give us kind of like the thirty thousand foot view of yourself oh uh, yeah thanks for having me cody um i appreciate it uh, i work for eastman's publishing i've been here for six years uh, I do a little bit of everything for the company, but I'm mostly here for the bow hunting uh, portion or the bow hunting aspect um, and archery related content. Um, I love my job and <laughs> I get to do a lot of bow hunting, so I cannot complain. That's never a bad thing. Never, never. It's uh, definitely changed my whole outlook on hunting, taking, you know, hunting as a, a recreational or a, a fun thing for me to do to, to work. Yeah. And so it's a little different now, but, um, you know, pressure's definitely higher, but I, I like it and I like pressure and, and I've really been enjoying it. Does it ever, uh, seem like you're, you're turning into a job? Cause I know for me, that was a little bit of it. Like I, you know, did ton of hunting and then I got semi in the hunting space. I don't really consider myself, I don't know, that, that much, like I'm dedicated, like the hunting I do doesn't have to be content per se. Uh, but I do, there are days where like, man, it kind of starts to feel like a job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say more of, it can be a grind in the fall and you definitely have to hunt knowing that you have, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 days left in the field. And so <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have the, the mindset of it being a marathon rather than a sprint. And so it changes how you hunt a little bit. And, um, you know, usually back in college or before this job, I would 
do some like pretty considered extreme backpack hunts. Uh, and, and now, you know, I can't do those as much because I have so many hunts that follow each hunt. And so I can't really be that hard on my body and expect, uh, performance, you know, two months down the road to be the same. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, no, totally. So one of the things, you know, I grew up hunting, Western Oregon and calling is the name of the game in thick country. Um, and it is for a lot of places, you know, Idaho, whatever. And I really yep. do love calling elk. Like there's just something about Beulah and bulls, but you know, as I moved to Montana, as my focus has been on bigger and bigger bulls or like pushing my archery level. And a lot of this stems also from just wanting to become a more rounded hunter. You know, I started hunting open country and two weeks ago we were talking about how you know, that transition, you know, start hunting more open country, you find more success and man, there's a lot of variables there, but I want to kind of talk like your journey of how you went from, you know, chasing elk in the early days to chasing elk now and how that's evolved and, and how you see that evolving for the average bow hunter. Yep. Yep. No, for sure. So I grew up in Northwest Montana and I hunted up there, um, around the Flathead Valley country and, that's exactly how I started hunting was, you know, thick country and calling and, you know, spot and stock was really not, you know, possible up there just because of the nature of the terrain and the vegetation. And so, you know, this is country up there. And I, I tell guys this, that if you can consistently kill elk in Northwest Montana, you can kill an elk easily anywhere else in the West. That's how, how difficult it is up there and how few elk are up there and how much pressure is up there. And so the biggest thing that I've noticed over the years is, you know, the different areas that I've hunted with the different habitat types, uh, directly correlating to the pressure, like the type of area, is it a general area with a lot of hunter pressure or is it a limited entry area? doesn't get a lot of pressure. Uh, the elk, I guess, for lack of better terms are, are dumber or they're less educated in areas that have less pressure. It's, it's kind of common sense stuff once you've done it for uh, several years. Um, but, but yeah, I, I struggled as a kid in that country, uh, to kill an elk with my bow. It, it's just difficult. It's difficult. These bulls are in general areas and you can't really move around in that country. So you'll go into a basin on a road and that's really the only way to access the basin is like an old gated logging road because you're not going to go beat down you brush and alders to, to get into the bait. You to take you, you know, hours to get a mile. Yeah. It's just so extremely hard to, to navigate. And I'm sure you've probably experienced, you know, that same thing in Oregon, you know, devil's club and ferns, and oh. you just can't go where you want. Well, for sure. I mean, it sounds a lot of the same. I mean, it's you know, very, very thick country and like, yeah, spot and stock is just merely a joke. Yep. Yep. So, so these bulls, they, they know they, they hear hunters coming from below up these logging roads and, you know, they call at them. And so they, they hear it so much. They're they're Anyway, they're just so difficult to kill. Um, and so I really started, started to expand out where I hunted in Western Montana on general tags. Uh, once I got into college, you know, and I'm, I'm, I was down in Missoula and I was down in Bozeman and, and hunting some different areas. And I was like, wow, it's so much easier down here. <laughs> 
<laughs> and not only is there just more elk, plain and simple, but just country's easier to move around in and, um, you, you know, just, just more elk. That's the biggest thing. You, if you have more animals, the odds of you finding a dumb one yeah. uh, are going to be higher, right? Did you find that you kind of took those same tactics from you from Northwest Montana to Southwest Montana? Definitely. Definitely. I, and, and I learned along the way because that, t- those tactics from Northwest Montana, it, that's all I knew. And so you kind of learn along the way. And, and as you hunt with more guys, maybe, or just hunt elk more in general, you kind of see how they respond uh, to calls in, in that open country. You can see more and you're like, man, this isn't working. Um, <laughs> and you're like, what the heck? You know, I grew up watching Primos videos. This is supposed to be easy. You, blow on the old hoochie mama or whatever. And a satellite bull comes walking right in. And yeah. And, and that's, that's what I watched when I was a kid and it took me, you know, a few years to be like, okay, that's, that's not what it's really like on public land in general areas. Elk are way smarter than this. Yeah. And it's, I guess it's, I mean, for me, it was like similar. Um, when I moved to Montana, I, I calling worked in some places and it didn't in others. And like, you know, actually I hunted Idaho for a lot of years and the Idaho country that I hunted was pretty sparse. I mean, it was still thick that call, still thick enough that calling work, but still open enough that you were like seeing way more elk than before. Um, and you know, on a similar pattern, like I started to see like, Oh man, I get in this open country and this, this calling doesn't work quite as well. Or like, you gotta be really careful with it. Um, and then when I came to Montana, I, you know, didn't quite use it. There's a lot of the people that I hunted with when I moved to Montana and even before when I was hunting Montana that like, they just had a different style. And I was always interested in learning. I was never interested in being like, here's my tactic and I'm going to take it around the world and and use it uh, regardless of what the terrain looks like. So I was always interested in like finding new ways to do things and, and just trying new tactics as a, as a whole. And so like, I, I think that's kind of one of the things that fascinates me. And I get a lot of questions on this because I don't know if it's because of the area I hunt or the types of bulls I hunt, but I move more away from calling. I'm definitely not anti-calling by any stretch. I still think there's great times. And, you know, I've encountered a lot of big bulls that when they get in the timber, you know, there's, I know guys that wouldn't even go after them, but I'm like, man, that's my, that's my jam. I know this game. Um, and so I love having all the assets, but I find it sometimes hard to articulate when to use one and when to use the other, or when one works and when one doesn't. So like for you, how did that progression go? Cause I know now you're hunting a lot more open country and you're spotting stock. Like how was that a slow progression? Or was it like, all right, screw this elk hunting doesn't or calling doesn't work in open country. I'm only on spot and stock. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say everything was accelerated when I got out of college and I started guiding elk hunts in Southwest Montana or down in paradise Valley actually. And that was mostly private land hunting. And I was able to interact with so many bulls and hunt so many bulls a season and so, you know, with, with clients archery into rifle season and you're putting, racking up 10 to 12 harvests every fall, it just accelerates your learning curve. For sure. And, and that, that was the biggest, that was like the catalyst or the, the turning point in my elk hunting career and just being able to watch and observe how elk react to calls. And, and of course, you know, these elk, they're, they're on private land half the time. And so they're easier to call in uh, compared to the elk that I was used to hunting out West. But 
once again in in the era of the wolf and the grizzly bear elk are they're just harder to call in i don't care where you're at if you have the wolf and the grizzly bear around elk are just smarter nowadays than than what they used to be and so you know even you you have elk that aren't aren't called at as much but they're still super cautious super wary um so just every every place i've hunted is different whether it's idaho wyoming or montana the elk just act different according to how much pressure uh, by hunters how much predators are around uh, and so on and so um, guiding really accelerated the the learning curve for me and that's where I transitioned into being more of a an open country elk hunter was my guiding years for sure was that was that because that was that found success for you or because it was easier to find success for clients? A lot of times I got a lot of buddies that guide and I've done a fair amount of, you know, poking along in that world too. Uh, and sometimes you do things, you know, getting a client an elk is different than getting yourself an elk. Do you feel like that had any effect on that transition or is that something that was a personal decision or is it mainly for getting clients out? I would say both because I would apply those tactics on my own hunts on public land around it where, um, you know, I would hunt the same way with clients as I would for myself. Yeah. And it kind of probably started right before I was guiding and, you know, I'm in close on a bull and, and he has his cows, you know, he has cows as a herd bull and just won't come into any call. It didn't matter what I would blow at him. He wouldn't come in. And so I, I just kind of stayed with him, with him and looped around on him because he was, he was in the kind of the scattered lodgepole and looped around and got in front of him. And, and basically he just, he walked by me and I shot him at like nine yards and I didn't even make a, a call at him. And that experience kind of was a turning point as well. And I took that into, uh, guiding when I first started guiding and I just kind of started using those tactics of calling less and getting closer to the elk and observing, watching and getting a feel for where they're moving and then just kind of looping around in front of them. And, and man, I, I learned that, you know, if you get to where an elk wants to be, they call in a lot easier. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> I mean, if you're just chasing elk and you're bringing up the tail behind them and they're moving and you're calling at them and they just came from there, you know, it's pretty rare that they're going to come back, that a bull's going to break off and come back the direction uh, that he just came from because he knows what's back there or what the herd is like. But if you're in front of them, it's way easier to get them to, to come into you, of course, if, if he's there you're in the direction that they're traveling. No, that's, uh, that's a very good point. It's kind of, it's almost comical because there's people that'll say, Oh, well, calling doesn't work. Uh, and spot and stock does, but the two applications were used completely differently. You know, like if I'm, if I find a bull at eight in the morning and he's going to bed and I'm trying to call him backwards, of course that's not going to work. There was no, you know, there was no situation where when you combine that, you know, you spot and stock to get in the right location, then calling works. And so there is a lot of that where I, I do feel like people kind of 
think that calling doesn't work, but at the end of the day, like it's a matter of a setup or a situation rather than like the particular calling. Now there's a lot of times where open country, you know, guys are trying to call elk across the field or giant open area. Well, that was never going to work no matter the setup. Um, so it's, man, for me, it's always been about balancing the two. Um, do you completely put the calls away now? Like I have buddies that don't even have calls, like would never have calls. Uh, and I have buddies that, you know, can't, can't take a call out of their mouth. Like where do you stand on that spectrum now of like balancing spot and stock first calling? Yes. So kind of going back to what you said, it's, it's so hard to articulate this because you just learn and it's all feel right. It's yeah. all just from experience and doing it. Um, but I always have a bugle with me. I always have a double read diaphragm where I can really get out that, you know, high pitch intense challenge bugle or bull calling cows bugle. And I look for situations where, um, you know, my specific calling will work. And so I may not bust out the bugle at all, but I'll look at a situation. And I'll be like, wow, wow, that bull's killable right there. I don't need to let him know I'm here. I don't need to call at him. I can sneak in with the terrain. So I'm good to go. But if I get in the timber and a bull's lit up and he's hot and I have some terrain to work with, then I'm like, yeah, this can work. And and the, the biggest thing that I look at when it comes to calling elk is they're so good at pinpointing your calling location. And so if I don't have terrain and plenty of natural barrier, whether it's a jackpot, a deadfall or something, then I tend not to call because they, they're just not going to come in. I, that's, that's my experience. If they can see where you're calling from, they're, they're not going to come into bow range. So if I'm in an area and I, I have, you know, a, a good draw to work with or some good topography and a, a bunch of thick cover, I'm probably going to bust out a call if, if a bull is, is lighting up. And I use one bugle and that, that's about it. I don't talk to, to them a lot. I don't want to talk to them a lot, especially when I get close, because once again, they're, they pinpoint you so easily. And so bull calling cows bugle, that's, that's what I use. And I get in close. I'll sneak in as close as I can till I feel I'm a couple hundred uh, yards or maybe even within 200 yards and um, bugle at them. So a really high, intense ending the bugle with a nice, abrupt, crisp, as loud as you can. And my calling really accelerated and started making sense to me. Um, when I, I was watching some of Joel Turner's stuff on, you know, what are the bugles actually saying to elk? Like, what, what are you saying to them when you're bugling to them? And so he, he calls it the bull calling cows bugle. And so that nice, high, uh, uh, abrupt, loud, intense bugle with no chuckles on the end is saying you're, you're talking to the cows. And so you're saying, come here, girls. So you're, you're ignoring the bull there. If he's bugling, you're talking to the cows and you're saying, come here, girls, come, come get you some of this or come, come look at me. I'm big and bad. And yeah. I've, I've really seen the behavior of, of bulls come in and they're just more aggressive and yeah. they're, they're more apt to come in. Now uh, let's, I mean, Joel is just on the podcast and I, I do, I mean, I really do agree with a lot of what he says on that. And like the bulls calling cow or display bugle, um, going in and just making that when you're 200 yards out, I'm curious 
to your thought process, you know, what Joel hunts a lot of the time is coast range or, you know, something similar where it's very, very thick country. Uh, when you're hunting open country, let's say you're in Montana or Wyoming, you move into 200 yards, like you've got to have some, a little bit of like, man, do I blow this call or do I just try to make the stock? Like, how do you decide on whether to go with the bull calling cow at 200 yards or just try to close the gap another 150 yards? It's based off of terrain and what I have to work with, I would say. Um, that's that's solely what it is. And if if I'm running out of country then and I have 200 yards and, and I, I don't have a stock on them or there's too much timber, you know, I'll try it. But if – and I, I guess I shouldn't have said 200 yards as like my, my magic distance. Um, it, it's based off of terrain. I'll get as close as I possibly can and and then – do my bugle based on the terrain and how much cover I have. Yeah. Well, I mean, like just, I know for me, it's like, it's definitely something that you're weighing out because if it's too open, you know, if it's thick, you feel like you can get closer. If it's too open, you feel like you can't bugle. And so there's like always this, like, ah, do I, do I try this? Do I throw this out or do I not? Or do I, cause one of the things that will, could happen, you know, you throw out a bull calling cow bugle, he may take his bull or cows and run depends on pressure, depends yep. on whether that bull has been messed with, you know? And so there's a lot of variables and I, I'm, I'm the same way, man. I get close. I'm like, man, I'm this close. Like, do you think I could get 60 yards? The, a lot of times what happens, and I don't know, you can speak on this as well. Like for me, it's like you try to get too close and you close that last 10% and you're going to get busted by some cows that you didn't see. So I, I like to make them make the last 10%. And that's where that comes in handy. You know, that throwing that bulls calling cows gives them the ability to make the last 10%. So I'm not trying to move while I getting picked off by cows or a lead cow or even the bull for that matter. Yep. Yep. So you're just taking all, all those factors in and you know, you're asking yourself with the train as you're stocking in or the ground cover, can, can I move in dead silently? Mm-hmm. That's a, uh, that's a huge factor. If I'm going to call or not, what's the wind doing? You know, a lot of times that, you know, you're, you're working with thermals and maybe you, you can't move in any closer because, you know, you're, you're going to crest around the corner and it's all deep, dark timber on the north face and your wind's going to drop down to them. But where you're at at the time, maybe you're you're across a little pocket meadow and the sun is beating on that meadow and those thermals are coming up. And so I'm like, OK, if I'm going to kill this bull, I'm going to have to call him in because I can't get any closer because of the thermals are going to be going down in there. So yeah, all those little factors. And then like you, like you said, you know, you're, you're getting in to the zone and they're going to have to make that last 10% move. And I kind of said that on, on my uh, presentation there where if I can get into a herd and I can see them and I'm within 70 yards I mean, that's, that might be all you can do, especially when you have a bunch of cows around. If you can get within shooting range of a couple of the cows, then, I mean, mission accomplished. Yeah. It's a waiting game. Yes. Yes. And then you're just waiting for that bull to make a move, check cows, push cows over to you. And if, if you can have the wind cooperate with you and you wait there long enough, it will happen. Totally. Yeah. yeah, no, and I, I mean, same way. Like, I think if you can get within that distance of cows, like, don't, 
maybe don't challenge. It depends on the, the, there's so many variables and it's always hard to explain to people because like there's a million variables that go through your head in that last little bit, trying to make it happen, um, that change, you know, the, the action or reaction, I guess. Um, you know, one of the things we were talking about, we were up on the mountain, uh, for the elk summit and we were talking about locations. We were kind of looking at some of these mountain features and I was telling guys like trying to show them wind and like how, you know, this canyon is going to draw the wind out of that canyon and it might overpower the thermals if we're doing this or whatever. Um, and I was showing them some pockets where I would anticipate back eddies in the wind. Uh, yep. And so like you'll get these spots on a mountain and, you know, everyone likes to think of thermals going up and down and it would be so cool if that was as, as easy as it was, but it's just not the case. And so what happens is you like get these back eddies and I'm sure if, and this is the problem with mountain hunting, you know, every time you think you get close to a herd of elk, the wind swirls. Well, in my opinion, and I don't know if you agree with this, but in my opinion, there's a reason that that happens. Like those elk like to sit in a back eddy of wind, just like a trout sits in a back eddy looking for, you know, food. Uh, and so uh, what, when you're talking about, like, you might not be able to make that last 10% happen, man, I've had that so many times where I get close. I'm like, man, the wind is going to be screwed up right where he's sitting. And he's not going to leave that spot because he knows that he's sitting there because there's a back eddy. And so being able to get him fired up and call him out of that back eddy is, is the only way it's going to happen. And mm -hmm. I, I know so many dudes I've talked about this, like, man, every time I get close, the wind would be bad or like a, it'd swirl on me or whatever. And like, I don't know, have you had that same experience where you get bulls that just sit in a perfect spot on the mountain? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Especially in general areas, they're, they're just more aware of pressure. They're more, maybe they've been jumped, mm. you know, who knows how many times that season they absolutely do. They, they play the, the terrain, they they play the wind. They know how what the wind is doing and what it's going to do in the afternoon, and they play it. And that kind of brings up a good point on on what I do before I go into an area. And so, you know, most of the time, our weather comes from the west or southwest. I mean, generally is is what you can say in the fall time, especially September. It's late summer. Um, you know, it's still probably pretty warm. Most of our wind and weather comes from that direction. Um, and so I, I look for drainages and, and ridgelines that play into that. So I want my, my drainages facing Southwest or facing West. And I'm betting on that, you know, the, those prevailing winds are going to be predictable on those ridgetops. That's smart. And, yeah. So obviously you know, storm fronts come in and, and it just, it kills that whole theory and it kills that whole thing, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, but it's a factor. Like if, if I'm looking at the weather before I'm going out for a week and I see it's going to be bluebird and I, you know, I check the wind, whatever is forecasted, I have 10 general spots that I can choose from. I'm going to go to these spots that are going to play better into those westerlies. That's and really smart. Yes, yes, and, and I've I've done that over the years, and and that's really helped. Um, just using, especially mule deer hunting up high, I've found those western slopes, those southwest slopes. You're hunting in in August, and you have those afternoon prevailing winds. At you know, you're hunting at nine thousand feet. Those winds are just blasting up the 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 basin or or a ridge line, and so you know that you're probably going to have an approach from above in the afternoons. No, that's, that's huge. And it's funny because so many people look 
at north north slopes, right? They're like, oh, I'm on the north side of this mountain or north side of this, um, disregarding like what's predominant winds in that area, yep. what's predominant thermals, what's predominant, you know, storms coming in, and how does that affect? Yep, absolutely. So those north faces, those east faces, if you have a westerly flow, like you say, you have the the back eddies, the eddies. I stay away from that stuff if I can at all costs. I, I do not want to go in that stuff. And when I will go in is first thing in the morning or, you know, at last light where you do, ha- you know, the wind will settle down and you do have those thermals or I'll, I'll go into that stuff in like during a, a rainstorm. And that's how I killed one of my biggest deer at 200 plus or was he was in a northeast face and he's in there for a reason just like you're saying these bucks and bulls they know they go to these bedding zones that have swirly winds but i went in there and got aggressive and i killed this buck because it was i wouldn't say it's dumping rain but it was raining steadily and it's just keeping your scent down and and the the your scent just kind of sinks and the wind just kind of sinks and in a rain like that and I went in there and killed him. And I don't think I could have killed that deer in a normal situation with normal weather. Oh man. I, yeah, that's, that's a great tip. I, I remember there was a place I hunted way too long that, uh, man, I would get into elk every single time. There'd be a ton of elk in there, but it would never even get close to a shot because like the wind was always terrible in there. And finally, it's like, I don't know why it took me so long to like dawn on me, but it was like, I need to quit hunting this. There's plenty of elk on this mountain. Uh, I'm choosing the hardest ones to kill that may <laughs> possibly never get a shot at because the wind, you know, just so terrible on that piece of the mountain. And so and that's, that's a great advice for people. It was like, think about the wind. I, I, and like, it's easy to be like, Oh, you know, you look at your map and it's like, Oh, wind's coming from the Southwest. Like, but what does that really mean? And what's that do on that mountain? And uh, these are things that take years to figure out. Uh, but I think a lot of people overlook that that particular piece of it. Yep, absolutely. And like like you said, with those those places, those spots that are so tempting, they suck you in, those north faces, those east faces. But that's where the elk spend most of their time. That that's why is because you encounter those elk, you know, that might be bugling down in there, that that's where they spend most of their time. And so yeah, you're tempted to go into that stuff or to hunt that stuff because you know, throughout the course of the day, they're on their, in their bedding area and, and they're in tough places like that. And so depending on the hunt and the location, I, I might not even, especially spot and stock, I, I probably won't even go in there, Cody. I, w- I wouldn't even attempt to go down into a North face or an East face because I know if I'm going to blow out those elk from their bedding area, they're going to totally move to different country. And I kind of learned this in when I was guiding, we wouldn't even go into bedding areas because those elk, they, they, they need a safe place. They need a place where they feel secure. They're not being bugged. And if you give them that place, they won't totally leave the country is, is kind of what our mentality was. So yeah. we, we would hunt them in the morning and the evenings when they're in their feeding areas or in their transition areas and we might, you know, we'll shoot elk or bump elk, but we wouldn't totally blow them out of the country because they still have that bedding area. They still have that space that they feel safe in. Oh man, that's, that's a very good point. I, and it kind of brings up a question and I don't know if maybe we could like use a story to, uh, kind of articulate the point, but is how do you, 
as an O'Connor balance not being aggressive because sometimes as an elk owner you got to be aggressive and got to get it done how do you balance being aggressive with not bumping elk um and this could be on a lot of levels and there's a lot of variables here but like for the most part like sometimes you got to be aggressive and sometimes you got to let those elk be where they are and not bump them out of the country how do you balance those two kind of actions yeah i mean uh, without being just like black and white it's not a black and white situation, but I'll just say it that I'll stay out of the bedding areas. If, if there's two variables that make it iffy on if I can get in there or not. So if I have an iffy wind or that I'm not sure on, or if, if I'm, you know, if the wind, I mean, man, if, if the terrain is tough or, or whatever, I, I opt to back out. I won't be aggressive in that situation. And and things that do play into how aggressive I am are how much time do I have to hunt? You know, is this the first day of the hunt? Do I need to go blow out a bed, bedding area on the first day? Probably not. Yeah. If I'm coming down to the end of my hunt and I haven't got it done yet and I'm not coming back this year in this general area, I might go you know, I might get reckless, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Get, yeah. So that kind of plays on how, you know, aggressive I get in a situation, but where I get aggressive is when they're most susceptible. And that's when they're on their feet, when they're moving, when they're in their feeding area, when they're in the transition area, I'll get pretty aggressive. I'll move on them hard, but you know, 10 o'clock to two o'clock or 10 o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon, they're in the thick timber they're in their bedding area. I stay pretty cat and mouse. I don't push it during those times at all. And I'll, I'll get, I would say less aggressive and I make way less moves in the middle of the afternoon than I do first thing in the morning or preferably in the evening. Oh, and, and like you said, like time matters too. You know, is it early season? Is it late season? You know, yeah. is it first day of hunt, 10th day of the hunt? Uh, those are a lot of variables. Uh, yeah. You know, you were saying that they're most vulnerable on their feet. I'm curious kind of like what your system is for when they are on the move or on their feet, so to speak. And do you prefer morning versus evening? I was just thinking of that where, or what, what time of day have I killed most of my bulls that I was, I was that was just going through my head and it's definitely the evening. Really? Yes. Yes. And that that's probably from a, a number of factors, but like my style is first thing in the morning, I don't get too aggressive. I'll get behind the spotter. I'll see what's going where. Um, I'll, I'll watch how vocal bulls are. I may or may not move on any, but if I'm going into an area, I, I like to, I, I just call it like take an inventory, see what's in there. And, and this is, you know, in areas that, you know, maybe a limited entry area. I'll quote unquote, take inventory. If I'm hunting a general area, I really don't care if there's a bull bugling, I'm going to go after them as long as it's, you know, a six point, it's yeah. kind of my, I'll go after it. And so in the morning, you know, I, I, I kind of just soak it all in. I kind of get a feel for what the elk are doing and where they're going to bed. And, and then in the afternoon, I take that time to move in close. I'll develop a plan and move in close and then in the evening, let them get on their feet. And that's usually when I go in to strike. Unless throughout the day, there's there's something that 
ticks me off to be to go and get aggressive and, and make a play on them. So that there's got to be like a variable, something that's like a blatant variable. Be like, holy smokes, that bull is bedded in the perfect spot. I'm going for it. Yeah. You know? But if there's any if ands or buts about it, I'm I'm probably going to sit back and wait till they get on their feet. Um, you, you know, bedded elk are just so tough to, to kill, especially if they're not bugling hot. And I mean, you know, you've hunted elk long enough that in the afternoon, they usually are going to settle down on the bugling a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. and so the less they're talking, the, if they're not moving and they're bedded, man, that's tough. That's tough. So you like to get within striking distance, uh, midday, kind of feel it out, you, you know, close enough that you can make a move, but far enough away that you're not going to bump them if the wind swirls. Yep. Uh, and when you start moving on a herd, like, do you have any tips or tactics on dogging a herd or following a herd, um, that you've kind of picked up over the years? Yep. So you're playing the wind the whole time. You want to kind of get a feel of what direction they're moving. So I'll kind of, once they get on their feet at the end of the day, I'll get close and I'll listen and kind of see what direction they're going. So I'll just kind of wait. And once again, this depends on how hot the bull is. Maybe he's, you know, off his mind, out of his mind bugling. I'm just going to probably go push right in and, and give him a bull calling cows bugle and see if I can't get him to come in. But I just kind of feel it out. And if they start moving, I kind of stick with them and stay downwind. And, you know, I, I use my my Google maps a lot and I'll look at the aerials and I'll be like, okay, they're heading this direction. They're probably going to head, you know, out here to feed. So I'm going to get around this point of timber. I'm going to get around the corner. It's, it's kind of cheating. It's not fair. Almost the technology <laughs> that we have these days. Yeah. But, but I look at my aerials a lot for reference for, for what I have for cover and, and to help me predict on where those elk are going to go feed at. And then if I have the wind, I'm just going to, you know, some guys call it the J hook or the loop around or, you know, whatever, and just loop around and get in front of them. And if, if I can do that and I have the wind, I'm, I won't say a peep. And I, I killed a bull a couple of years ago doing that. It, it was a, he was not a big herd bull, but it was a, a decent six by six. And he had like 60 cows and there were three or four satellites and I had the wind and I stayed with them and they were kind of just getting on their feet and kind of staging in the thick junipers. I knew they were going to head down to an ag field. And so they're, they're just slowly moving down that direction, you know, at five o'clock in the evening, still pretty early. And as they kind of work down this ridge, I, I could see on the map that the toe of the ridge was coming up. So I looped around the toe of the ridge and I had the wind. And I just waited and they all like these cows filed by at like eight yards. I was just sitting there in in the shadow of a juniper. And, and so there I was, I I did all that I could to get close. And then probably 15 minutes of that, thank goodness I had that great wind. uh, The bull pushed a cow by me at 35 yards and I shot him. And so that's, that's a good uh, example of just kind of feeling a situation out and, you know, with all those eyes and all those satellite bulls, if I'm going to call, you know, the, the first bull that's going to come in is one of these desperate little satellite bulls. Yeah. I, I don't, that I don't, could blow it all. Yeah, it, it, it would have. It would have just because there's just too many eyes. And so I want to kill that herd bull. I want to kill that solid six, six by six. I'm going to have to keep, 
my lips zipped in this situation. And since I had such a good wind, just use that and use the terrain and get close. And, and it's, man, it's difficult. But when you have a good wind and a little bit of terrain to work with, bam, that's all you need to, to get in on a herd. And if you can get in front of them, it's just a matter of time before that bull pushes a cow by. I mean, obviously other things can happen. You know, cows come feeding right up to you and can blow the whole deal. That, that happens sometimes too. But I've really found success doing that. Yeah. And you know, I love calling in bulls. Like there's no, no better feeling than having a bull come screaming in right in your face. But when it comes down to percentages of shot opportunities, I do feel like you have such a higher percentage of shot opportunities when a bull is untouched or he has no idea you're there. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, but there's also a lot of things that can go wrong when you're calling elk or when you bulls coming in, you know, especially getting in like a solo situation, which is 90% of what I do. Uh, I, I love to do it. And there's times where it's necessary in my opinion. Uh, but there's also times where you'll, you'll be able to be more patient and get the shot you want, you know, on a bull that has no idea you're there. Even if he's chasing cows running around, uh, you know, you can wait for that perfect shot. You can wait for him to move his leg. You can wait for him to move around this tree where sometimes you call, you got to be willing to force that last shot, you know, like move around a tree while he's staring at you or, you know, whatever it may be, squeeze it through a gap. Uh, and those are, man, a lot of things can go wrong in those situations. Whereas when you have, you know, a hurry comes right to where you're at, or you pick the right meadow that they're going to go feed in and you can sit there. I mean, you have, you know, 20, 30 minutes to wait for the perfect shot, uh, much higher percentage of shots in that, in, at least in my experience. 100%. I couldn't agree more. If, if I don't have to let that elk know that I'm there, I'm not going to. And, and that just comes down to an alerted elk. I mean, if, if we're talking bow hunting, which that's what we do, <laughs> it, you, you have hang time, right? So if you're shooting at an alerted elk with a bow, you know, usually they don't jump the string, but I've had them. I, I sh- this last year, I got in front of a herd that came by at 30 yards and it was a high pressure area. The bull had been hit already. I could see a hole in him and he was so wound up and I cow called and, and he, he locked up at 30 yards and sent the arrow and he jumped like a whitetail. He was, he was alert <laughs> and, he, and he ducked super hard and spun around and I, I had a glancing hit into his scapula and you know, that, that bull's he's gone. It didn't penetrate. And so that's huge. If you can shoot an, an elk that's unalerted to your presence way less chance that he's going to duck your arrow like that. And, and a disaster happens way less chance. Totally. And we were talking about how, you know, waiting for the bulls or the herd of elk to get up, start moving towards where they're going to feed. Uh, I think a lot of people tend to predict that they're going to go where they came from in your opinion. Like how, how much do they go back to where they fed in the morning? How much do they go somewhere different? Uh, what's the best way to predict where they're going to go? <laughs> oh, man. I, you struggle with this one all the time. It doesn't matter what species you're hunting. The mule deer, I think, are the hardest uh, because they, they – I, I wouldn't say never. When, yeah. when you, you think they're – the time you think they're not going to come back out to the same spot where they went in, they do, but it's very rare. Yeah. Um, but elk can be a little more predictable, but it's the time of year is, is what I've seen. So if, if bulls are in their summer mode, they're lazy, it's pre-rut, uh, maybe they 
they just rubbed their velvet, whatever, you know, we're talking the end of August here. They're going to be a little more predictable to going into the bedding area and coming back out in a very close vicinity. If you have a bull with a bunch of cows during the rut, then good luck guessing where those that <laughs> cows going to want to go. I mean, yeah. it, it, I would say that they're probably not going to come out and feed the same way that they went in. And then you have later in the season, post rut, you know, in Montana, maybe, you know, hunt in November, it's pretty predictable. I would say that your bulls bash your group up again and maybe they're hanging by themselves and they're not moving far from feeding to bedding area. Then it's, they're pretty predictable. Um, but during bow season, during the rut, when we're hunting, super tough, super tough. And it, it also comes down to the, the country that I'm hunting. So I, I look at this too. So I, I look at how thick the, the timber is or the bedding area is, if there's timber there, is there feed in the timber? Are these elk hanging up in the timber or maybe the junipers before they're hitting the food source at night? If, if they're not, if they're, this timber is so thick or where they're bedding so thick that there's no graze in there, then I can predict a lot or I have a, a better chance of predicting, I'll say, of where they're going to come out to feed. And, and they're more predictable on coming out at certain times to hit the feed. Um, does, does that make sense? No, totally. I, I would agree. And it's like very hard to articulate, very hard to say. Like it's, you're guessing at best. Yeah, I remember old whitetail guys being like, oh, just pattern them and get in front of them. Like, yeah, that doesn't work without. Uh, right. <laughs> and I, you know, I, if I had any tip, I guess it would be that like, will you see a park or a meadow that you're like, oh, elk will go feed in that. I have rarely seen that in my life where these elk just get up and head straight to this big park that's like yeah. on a map. Yeah. And if they did, it would never be before the sun goes down and it's completely dark. So, you know, a lot of times in my, you know, in my experience, they, they move through the timber and they'll feed, you know, they usually get up earlier than people think, but they feed in the timber and work their way slowly. It's not like, uh, do they get up and walk straight to this big meadow that's on your map? You know, like that just does not happen that way. Uh, right. and so like try, having said that predicting the route, good luck. It's like hurting cats. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, who knows, right. uh, whichever wind is going to be <laughs> the worst situation. That's generally the way they go <laughs> on me. <laughs> right. Right. For sure. They're smart. And that brings up another point too, is how they move from bedding to feeding or the times or how soon they do hit the parks. It is directly correlated to the pressure in there too. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. If you're hunting general areas and I, I keep thinking back to last year, my Wyoming hunt where I went into and it's, it's kind of silly. It's not real. Like what <laughs> I'm, I'm normally used to hunting on public land because it's a limited entry area. There's not a lot of tags. Um, it's 10 miles in these elk don't get pressure, uh, in, in the back country. And it's, I mean, elk, they're coming out at four in the afternoon and just standing around in the wide open feeding. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then in the mornings, I mean, they're out on these open slopes until 10 AM and they elk just don't do that it, yeah. where there's, where there's hunter pressure on a general tag elk just don't do that they they do more like what you're describing they, they may come to the the major food sources after dark but 
in reality, they're feeding in the, in the scattered timber tight along the edges. Um, they're keeping close to cover. They're really watching a park or their, you know, bigger area, but Hey, heck, once that sun goes down and it's dark out, all bets are off. They move around all over the place. Totally. Um, no, and, and like, again, it's how pressure, I think most people are hunting pretty pressured public ground. And so I think it's, it's a good expectation just to set. It's like, okay, just assume they're going to move, uh, through the timber first. They're going to be feeding in the timber. They eat a lot more woody plants than people think. We talk about this a lot. Uh, you know, people always just look at grass as a resource, but like, you know, these woody plants, what parts of the vegetation, you know, if you scouted that, that's good information. Uh, you know, areas that have a a lot of, you know, if you look at, uh, you find an area and you, it's, it's bedding area and you find, uh, some on the way to a, uh, bed or a feeding area, you know, you have these like braided trails everywhere. It's probably a good sign that those elk are taking different routes. They're feeding through that area and not just cruising through it on one major trail. Uh, you know, like those are things you look for on your scouting weekends when you're, uh, early season, you're like, okay, there's a ton of elk trails in here. Well, probably a good sign that they just kind of meander throughout and feed, uh, not just covering ground. So, I mean, small things like that. Uh, yep. we were talking about, uh, bachelor herds and I'm kind of curious, uh, calling wise, hunting wise, how does, how does your tactics differ? Say your early season, uh, you come across a bachelor herd, there's a bull in there you'd love to, to, to shoot. But obviously I think the, the bulls calling cows bugle is probably not going to work on a bachelor herd. <laughs> right. Right. So when they're in that stage in which I'm, I'm probably going to encounter something like this this year, because I, I drew a limited entry tag again this year in Wyoming and elk tag, and I'm, I'm going to hunt it early. I, I want to hunt them like mule deer and they're going to be in their summer patterns, uh, bachelor herds, just like what you're saying. And so the answer to that is you hunt them like mule deer and I'm, I'm not going to be calling at that time. Um, you know, it, it depends to if it's like some of those bulls, they get ruddy early like that and they'll start like breaking up and kind of moving away from each other. It's still pre rut, but if they're solo, and if they're bugling in the morning, then they, they probably are, are callable. But if you're still hunting in August and what's tough in, in Montana and Wyoming is, you know, opening day is September 1st in Wyoming every year for elk and Montana's Labor Day Saturday, basically. And so usually by that time, they're out of their bachelor herds. Uh, most of them are, it depends on where you're at, or you might get a few days that they're in their bachelor herd still, but usually by like the 5th of September, you can call them in, um, yeah. e even early like that, whether it's a cow call or, or just, you know, uh, that might be a good situation for just a, a, a locator bugle. And I've had like oddly good luck calling bulls in super early like that before the rut they're, they're by themselves but they're piping off bugles yeah and they're in their area and i think they're they're still territorial and everybody's still trying to figure out who's the dominant bull in the area and so they'll be pretty aggressive and until they have an encounter with another bull and they might get their butt whipped or something but man a, a couple cow calls or you know, a, just a, a light locator bugle super early like that before the rut. I've had them come galloping in. Yeah, no, I, I love that time when the big bulls are kind of cruising and looking for cows. Like, yep. oh man, you can two cow calls and have a bull screaming on top of you. Yep. Uh, it's funny because a lot of 
if you do, there are definitely elk that are bugling that are herd herded up. You know, like people are like, oh no, bugling herded up. Uh, I've had very little luck chasing like quote unquote herd bulls. Uh, you know, first week of September, usually the bull that's quote unquote running the herd. He's technically a herd bull. He's not going to be for very long. Uh, but he's, he's living in fear, you know, <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's got that herd and he thinks he's tough and he's probably bugling a lot, but he knows he's not supposed to be the top dog. He's not supposed to be there. Uh, and I've had just horrible luck trying to call those bulls in because it's like, they will run, you know, they'll push, they'll, they'll stay away. Like they, they know they're not the big dog. He's just got some cows right now. And, you know, so if you're pre, what I say, pre rut and just generally means there's not a cow in heat. There's just a bull hanging out with cows, tending them. Uh, you know, those bulls can be tough. And generally speaking, uh, there's probably bulls in the area. You're probably in the right location. There's probably something close by, but you know, that's easier to call in, uh, over say, you know, a bull, a two sixty bull that's running a herd on September 2nd or, you know, 7th or whatever. Yep. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. That's what I've seen too. And some guys, some of the, the best hunters that I know are in Montana and they hunt general tags and these elk are just, they're so tricky, but what they've seen and what I've seen in the past too, hunting up there are those big bulls, those next level bulls that are actually going to be doing the breeding. They kind of hang back and they'll kind of stage or the, maybe they'll stay up on the mountain and stay timbered up. And then all of a sudden, you know, the 10th or 11th or 12th, the, the big bulls come down and they take the cows away from your little bulls that you're talking about that they're, they're kind of living in fear, but they're there early. They're a little anxious and they do the breeding. The, the big bulls come down, they do the breeding and then they leave. Yep. I've, I've seen that quite a bit too in Montana. I, I've seen that in Oregon as well. I mean, and that's not a bad tactic. Like if you get into elk and you got, you know, you're, you're hurt of elk, but you're having a hard time. Like they're just not, you can't call a herd bull in or whatever. And it's early season. I'd start poking around for bugles outside of, you know, where that herd is. And he's not going to yep. be far. Like he's in the, usually in the same drainage or same area. And if, you know, if I pick up a, a single bugle that's kind of in a one timber pocket, I'm like, that's, that could be the big one, you know? And then that's a great time to slip in there and maybe just throw a couple cow calls or do some raking, like you know, soft bedroom tactics. Cause a lot of those bulls, man, you get a big bull that's hanging out around the herd early season. He's not going to be super aggressive, but if you can kind of coax him that last little bit with a couple cow calls or uh, just raking, you know, th- those are the times where he's going to feel threatened. You know, if there's a bull trying to like size him up and he's in his kitchen, you know, like that small area, uh, or maybe, you know, if there's a couple cows, he might wander over. Uh, that's a great time. You know, if you're like having trouble calling a herd bull in the opening week. Think, think about what, what's in the area. And, you know, sometimes you'll turn up satellite bulls that aren't worth it, but sometimes you'll turn up a big one that's just hanging out in the area. Yep. Yep. And you're, you're describing exactly how my elk hunt went last year Oh, really? in Wyoming. Yeah. So, so my classic, I'm in my area, there's bulls above the tent first thing in the morning, I just get up on the hill on a nice vantage point and I just see what's around. And, you know, I'm, there's, 30 bulls say, which there's probably like 20 some bulls. There was a lot of bulls. And I look up on the hill and there's kind of one basin up there that has 60 cows and there's a a true 370 bull up there with them. And this is September 9th. And so we're getting up there. And and this is kind of 
it's it's the exception. It's not the rule because the bull density is is so high in there. But I'm looking at this 370 bull. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to kill that bull, but he has 80 cows, and so let's see what else is in here. So I'm just watching, scanning, and I and I I take my time and probably 10 o'clock, you know, I get a feel for for what's in the area and what's around. And to my east, there was another giant bull by himself. And he, it was weird. It's, it's like he was staging in there. He knew the cows were over there and he would, he would bugle on the ridge. And I know he can see them. I mean, those elk are a mile away probably to him, but he's on a ridge and he's bugling in the direction of the cow herd. But he didn't just go run over there. He wasn't looking for confrontation yet. Mm-hmm. And there's enough bulls in the area that, that everybody's still trying to, they're, they're kind of keeping their distance still. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make a play on this big herd bull that has the cows. I'm going to loop around from the east and come in from above um, by about one or two o'clock because I know on that rim, I'm going to have a nice westerly or a southwest flow and it's a southwest basin. And I'm just going to try to work on them in in the rocks or up on the rims and, and see if I can't get a shot. But I know that this other giant by himself is going to be up in here somewhere. And so I'm just going to uh, take a roll of the dice. I know he piped off a few bugles in the morning. And so we saddle up the horses about one o'clock, one thirty. Once again, I like to wait to the afternoon. They're all bedded down. They're all in the timber. And me and my camera guy, we just, we rode our horses up this timber line and we're in the process of a two mile loop around to the backside of this giant herd. And we're working up the, the tree line and a bull pipes off just inside the timber. And was not impressive bugle, just a just a location, a locator bugle. That bull heard us clomping out there with the horses. Mm-hmm. And and he was just saying, okay, who's out there? Like, you know, sound off. And so I was like, oh, I mean, we're 150 yards. I, I signal back at my cameraman and uh, we, we tie up the horses and we get off quiet. And I, I stock up along the edge of the timber. And this is like thick bedding area, dark timber. And I just, I, I had some good cover to work with because it was so thick. So I just hit a couple light cow calls and I know this bull is by himself and he's looking, but he's still staging. And so just a couple quiet cow calls. And then I moved into the timber. I, I had a, a route, a trail in front of me where I knew I could move up another 40 yards pretty silently. So I hit my cow calls and I moved up and that bull came in silent. But I knew he was going to loop around on the thick timber side and I was there to meet him because he was trying to loop around on the downwind side and come in from the, the thick side of the cover because he felt most secure that way. Yep. And I had one tree blocking my view. And I was like, OK, I, I can kill that bull here on the right side. I can kill the bull on the left side. I have all sorts of shooting lanes unless he comes in on a beeline right behind that tree. <laughs> and guess what? That's what yeah. he did. And so I just peek around the corner and I can see his beam. He's 35 yards. I can see his beam. It's going to make an, an epic episode for Beyond the Grid where it's, we'll release it in August. I peek around the corner, giant bull standing there. And I, I, I just barely saw his antler tips. He's at 35 yards. And I, I signal my camera guy and I draw my bow and I step out and 
I know the Bulls not going to come in any closer because it's been five minutes. The thing he tiptoed in there and he's just standing there silent, won't bugle. And he's just waiting to hear those elk that he heard. Mm-hmm. Just super smart. And so I just like barely, just slowly at full draw, ease out from the side of the tree. And my hope is, you know, at 35 yards, I had a frontal shot, but I'm just, I'm just not going to take it. I just, 20 yards is my limit on frontals. That's my personal thing. I'm not going to take it. And so my hope is that he's going to spin around to go because he didn't really have any other place to go. He was going to have to do a 180 and leave the way he came. Yep. And so my hope is if he kind of lost interest and he turned around, I'd give him just a peep on, on the calf call or cow call, get him to stop and I could shoot him. Yep. But I, I just barely lean out. He's kind of has his head tilted at me. And I found out later that the bull was blind in one eye, but he saw me and he just, he spun and, and, and left as quick as he came in <laughs> and there was no stopping him. But so he saw something, but he wasn't totally convinced because he just saw like a, 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 just a little bit of movement. And once again, this bull has one eye. So He's, he's not convinced. And so he blows up. I knew he didn't win me. So I just hit the cow call again. And this bull looped out and he came out into the wide open. And he, he came out and, and he was looking at my horses. So he could see my horses behind me, 60, 70 yards. And when he was like trotting out of there, running out of there, he heard me calling. And so it was enough for him to loop around and for whatever reason he he just came out into the wide open and stared at my horses and me and my cameraman moved another 70 yards up through the timber and poked out the edge of the timber and I ranged him at 72 and he was sitting there just staring at my horses as calm as can be and I drew back and heart shot him oh nice dude and and he ran out in the open the wide ass open slope and tipped over on the skyline. It, like it's epic footage. On so a, awesome on a big 360 bull. It was as good as it gets for me. But right there, like you couldn't have scripted that. You're not going to find that in the book. Yeah. Like the 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 bull looked at the horses and and he keyed in on that. But he was territorial enough where he came into my cow call. He's still playing the periphery and he's still curious enough. And he he still bugled, but. From the inflection of his bugle, it, he was, it was not an aggressive bugle at all. And so that's why just a couple cow chirps and, man, the horses as decoys, honestly. Like, <laughs> totally. Like, that, that's what did it for me, Cody. That's that's why I killed that bull is because that, that bull was convinced that there were cows out there because he heard them, not only their hooves, he heard them call. So he was convinced and he, and he ran out to look. And he saw the horses and, you know, I got a couple of buckskin horses and so <laughs> he's looking at him like that looks like some girls, but I'm not convinced yet. Yeah. And that was the distraction. I worked out to the edge of the timber and killed him. Dude, that's oh, so many levels are awesome. Uh, part of the, part of that probably happened because you were so remote, you know, that's elk that probably had right. maybe never even seen horses before. He's like, ah, you know, probably had, had a lot of run-ins with humans. So he's like, something's off, but it's not that off. You know what I mean? Uh, right. huge benefit of hunting remote country is you can get those second chances, but man, I've had so many 
scenarios that are just like that where you're like you know there's a bull it's pre-rut like he's not worked up but you know he's in this little timber patch and he's that's exactly what they do right like they come in sneak in super silent stop in the thick stuff and they're like listening for you you know they're waiting they're waiting to know and it's not this bugle fest that his bull comes running in like there's i just don't think there's any version of that where he comes screaming in unless he's you know there's a rut and there's a hot cow like they just don't act like that and there's so many times where you know you see aka the the herd bull and there's if not bigger bulls there's definitely equal bulls in the area hanging out like that aren't making a ruckus that aren't out just screaming their head off and looking for cows, you know, they're, they're playing the game. It's early in the season. It's a marathon to them, not a sprint. Yep. Yep. And what I would have done, like knowing, I mean, who knows what would have happened because I didn't even get a chance to make a move on that giant herd bull with the cows. So I don't know how the afternoon would have panned out, but if that bull wouldn't have bugled and he wasn't talking, I would have just posted up and, and just listened and waited and let that bull feed out because once again, these are a low pressured elk. There's a lot of bulls around. And so to kill a giant bull like that when he was, he was out so late in the morning, like I, I figured I'd probably have a chance at him that yeah. evening, e- evening. And so in those situations where you're in the middle of the afternoon and there's a big bull in the timber like that, like I probably wouldn't even touch it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even touch that situation. I would post up on a point where I knew I had a nice prevailing wind that wasn't going to screw me up. And I would just wait them out until the evening, like on a big bull like that, I would just tiptoe more. But, um, yeah, it's just, like you said, everything's so situational. And in that scenario like that, where, and this kind of brings up another point too, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, but in areas that have higher bull densities, that just the competition is higher and bulls are just easier to call in. Yeah. There's just more bulls around. There's more elk around. There's more cows around. Like calls just work better when there's more elk around. Totally, totally. And that's, I mean, the high bull to cow ratios, uh, easy, the remoteness of it. Like there's a lot of variables. Being in a high mountain situation with the open terrain, I'm, I'm just thinking about Wyoming. You know, that Wyoming backcountry is so open. Like you just know you're going to get a shot. It's not like one of those situations where it's so thick. You're like, man, I may never see this bull again. Uh, he could be cruising. You, know, you kind of, you're like, well, there's a solid chance I'm going to see him tonight. And there's a really good chance that he comes out in a stockable position in the evening. So, you know, you, uh, yeah, I think I would play the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's all situational and it's just getting a feel for it. And like I said, at that, um, the hunting summit, the Western hunting summit was like, I, I wish I could just like write it all down for you <laughs> and you could like figure it out. But it's like, it's like anything in life where it just takes work. It takes the time. It takes the, the experience, you know, you're not going to be, uh, you know, a, a great three point shooter by reading a book, you got to practice, you got to play the game. Totally. And it's always hard for me. And I feel like I'm not the best at explaining how to do things. Cause I'm one of the people that's like, yeah, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. Like, yeah, that works. Yeah, that works. Like, and to me, it's just like, I've always been about learning more tools for the tool chest and like being able to read the situation and, and apply the right one is really the key. And that's where experience comes in and being like, ah, should I go in screaming right now? Or should I wait and see how this pans out? Exactly. Exactly. That's the best way to put it. And you know, like, like you're saying with these big bulls early, how many bulls did I screw up over the years <laughs> b- before I got a chance to shoot a 360 bull like that? Yeah. 
like, I mean, you, you just, it's all from just experience. You got to try and it's, it's part of experience and it's just a numbers game, right? So if you try long enough, eventually you're going to be successful at it. Oh, for sure. Uh, if, you said that hunt was coming out. Are you, when is that uh, going to be available and, and where? Yeah. So beyond the grid TV, it's our digital platform. Um, it's on waypoint TV, which is a website it's on Amazon prime and YouTube, of course. Um, we're going to release uh, a cluster of videos in August, right before hunting season, deer and elk hunting. Um, so we'll release it. We'll promote it on our social media platforms and release them throughout the month of August. Um, and, and I think I'm going to release that bow hunt first. Um, it's my Wyoming bow hunt last year, me and my camera guy, uh, you know, 10 miles in the backcountry on horses, quite the adventure in yeah. And and an epic experience, and I know epic gets used quite a bit, very carelessly, but, <laughs> but it, it it gives you hope. Like that's what this this hunt did was there's still just incredibly mind blowing good elk hunting on public land, Cody. There there really is, and not every limited entry unit has that mind blowing elk hunting like that, but it's still possible. It's still out there for the public land guy to achieve if you want to work for it. Oh, and Wyoming backcountry is like still kind of, I hate to say the last frontier of elk hunting, but pretty much is uh, it's a pretty epic place. It's too bad yep. non-residents can't hunt it. <laughs> I know, I know. That, that is a bummer for non-residents. And, you know, I, I didn't never hunted Wyoming until I moved here and became a resident. And yeah, we're, we're pretty spoiled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just rub it in Just Wyoming residents <laughs> getting all that land to themselves. Yeah. You know, and people complain about this. And I, if I was a resident and the reason I don't complain about it, cause there's still a, a, a future where that might be, it might exist, uh, is that, you know, if I was a Wyoming resident, I would be like, yeah, we want this to ourselves. <laughs> Right, right. But hey, this hunt last year, it was non-wilderness, so there's still hope. There's oh, still there you go. Yes. Yes. There's still places that you can get way back in there. You know, it might be off an ORV road or something, but there's still places you can get way back in there, non-wilderness areas, because you know, commercial filming, we can't just go film in the wilderness commercially, right? So I still I still solely and, and majorly hunt in non-wilderness areas because of the commercial filming issue. Uh, such a pain. So it is, it is. And we've, we've gotten lucky and we've done a couple um, permits over the years with the Forest Service and, and hunted in wilderness areas, but it's special permitting and, and it's pretty rare. Um, so, so yeah, it, the hope is still out there. There's still great non-wilderness uh, hunting for non-residents. Um, it's just a matter of getting a tag. That's the hardest thing these days for a non-resident with point creep and everything. No, like, and, and that's, that's why I, oh, go ahead. I just, just to say that I, t I tell my buddies that some of these areas that I've drawn, like as a non-resident, you'll, you'll never draw them. You'll never catch up with point creep <laughs> and you'll, you'll never draw them. And it, it is kind of sad, but there's still a lot of great elk hunting that non-residents can get you know, access to and get a tag for. For sure. And actually at the elk hunting summit, you were showing us a little bit into the new tag hub that Eastman's got. Uh, do you want to plug that for a second? Yeah. So Eastman's tag hub, it's, it's a, a new property for us. And basically if anybody that's familiar with the MRS type information that we put uh, in the magazine, we've, we put it on a website and it's for all 11 Western States and all the information is there. You have six or seven different fields to, to filter for each state. And so we've just made it a platform that's the easiest platform out there 
to find general areas, to find limited entry areas uh, for the, the average guy, the guy that wants to research and do it on their own and find a tag on their own and either draw that tag or find a general tag on their own and and find areas that have the best success rates, that have the most public land, um, that have the, the best access. You have all these filters that you can use to help you find the best area for you. No, and I will say I like some of the filters that you guys have. There's a lot of data um, within it. So uh, it's a great system. Uh, I haven't got to play with it yet. So uh, once once I do, I'll have more on it. But uh, so far, what I've seen when Dan was playing with it, uh, looks really good. Yeah, it's it's in a, the cool thing is it's an evolving system. We're always updating it. We're always making it better. We're always adding information. There's something like almost 500,000 data points on here. It's just like mind blowing. We have these guys that that's all they do is just enter the information and, and analyze statistics. And and so, yeah, it's, it's a big, a big thing for us. And uh, yes, that's what we want to do is make it as easy as possible for the average hunter. Totally. Um, already, man, I'm freaking pumped for elk season now. Uh, wishing I had a Wyoming <laughs> tag right now, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's what it is. Uh, thanks for jumping on. Uh, I guess we'll link up to wherever the best place to check that video as, uh, the video when it comes out, um, maybe subscribe to YouTube channel, Amazon, whichever you watch your hunting films on. But, uh, Dan, thank you so much and, uh, good luck this year, man. My pleasure, Cody. I appreciate it. I'm all fired up now, too. I'm like sweating now. I'm ready to get out of fun. Alrighty, man. We'll chat soon. Yep, sounds good. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. Check it out. Link in the show notes.